Well, almost every day of the year has a holiday, uh, an observance, or something to celebrate attached to that day. You know, it's obvious. Some obvious ones are Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter, Memorial Day, and National Pancake Day, obviously. But there are many that are less obvious or less known in the general population. For example, School Principals Day. How many of you know when School Principals Day is? No one. It's Monday, tomorrow, May 1st, where you celebrate your principal. My dad was a principal for many years, for the majority of his career, and I don't think I've ever heard of this day. I definitely know I never celebrated that day, and I'm sorry, Dad, (laughs) that we never celebrated you being a principal. Or on May 1st is also National Chocolate Parfait Day, so you can celebrate your principal by eating a chocolate parfait, apparently. Or National Garden Meditation Day, May 3rd, which encourages everyone to take some time for themselves and relax. So it's basically National Take a Nap Day, which I'm all in favor of. That sounds good. Or Ascension Day, which is on Thursday, May 18th. Ascension Day, which is often called the Feast of the Ascension of Jesus Christ, is held on a Thursday 39 days after Easter Sunday to commemorate Jesus Christ's ascension into heaven. But like many of these days, my guess is that Ascension Day is probably not marked on many, if any, of our calendars. And it's not marked in our calendars because we don't often think much of it or talk much about the Ascension of Christ, or at least in its own right. Michael Horton, in his book, People in Place, A Covenant Ecclesiology, writes this, typically we treat the Ascension as little more than a dazzling exclamation point for the resurrection rather than an event in its own right. And what I want to do this morning is just answer four questions about the ascension of Christ to help us better understand it, uh, to help us to see it as more than a dazzling exclamation point for the resurrection, but as a new event in its own right that has significance, value, and worth. And so there's four questions here this morning. The four questions are this. One, what is the ascension of Christ? Two, why don't we think much about the ascension of Christ? Three, why does the ascension of Christ matter? And fourthly, how did the disciples respond to the ascension of Christ, which is our application for the text. First, what is the ascension of Jesus Christ? We've seen that Jesus, he's risen from the grave, three days in the grave, was dead, and now he is alive. But what is Jesus doing after he resurrected? Well, for 40 days after the resurrection, Luke tells us in Acts 1 that he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. For 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to many. In fact, at one point, uh, Paul tells us that he appeared to over 500 believers at one time in 1 Corinthians 15. And he taught them about the kingdom of God. For instance, we know Matthew 28, that Jesus is on the mountain before he ascends into heaven and he gives them and subsequently us, the church, a clear mission reason for why we are here on earth, to go and make disciples of all the nations. But he also, in Acts chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, this same event, it says, while he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which he said, you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So, 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus and his disciples, they're on the Mount of Olives near Jerusalem. And Jesus promises his followers they would soon receive the Holy Spirit. And he instructed them to stay in Jerusalem until the Spirit of God God had come on them. And then Luke tells us 
In verse 50 and 51, the same event. Then he led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, the same place, Mount of Olives, lifting up his hands. He blessed them. And while he was blessing them, blessing them, he left them and was carried up into heaven. Jesus is blessing his disciples, and as he is blessing them, he begins to ascend into heaven, or he begins to be carried off into heaven. In fact, Luke writes about this again in Acts, and he says, after he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. The disciples are standing there, and Jesus is speaking with them, and then Jesus starts to take off from the earth. He begins to lift up into the sky, and a cloud takes him out of their sight. And so what is the ascension of Jesus Christ? Well, the ascension of Jesus Christ is the literal bodily return of Jesus to heaven. It's the literal bodily return of Jesus to heaven. Literal meaning it's real, factual, a historical event. Bodily meaning that Jesus' body physically ascended or he was physically carried off out of their sight. In other words, this was not a figment of the disciples' imagination. This was an actual event in recorded history that Jesus was actually lifted into the air and carried away from them. The ascension of Jesus is a literal bodily return of Jesus to heaven. Now, when it comes to the ascension of Jesus, for many of us, this is where we kind of just stop. Okay, Jesus left and he went to heaven. Jesus was taken up into the air like a, a spaceship or something, like a rocket, and we're left here on earth. In other words, we don't tend to think much about the ascension of Jesus, but why? Why? Well, this leads to question two. Why don't we tend to think much about the ascension of Jesus? Well, there are a number of reasons, and Patrick Schreiner, in his book called The Ascension, lists five. He gives five reasons that I just want to share with you here quickly that I think that resonate with this idea of why we don't think much, talk much, give a lot of time to probably the ascension. First is this. The Bible speaks little of it. When you look at the text, the scripture, it speaks little of it. It, it, it may be the primary reason we tend to overlook the ascension. In fact, the customary Greek word for ascent is not used in the New Testament. And only two places in the New Testament actually cover this event, Luke 24 and Acts chapter 1. Seven verses. Seven verses in the Bible actually cover this event of Jesus lifting off, taking off, ascending into heaven. In case you're wondering, that's 0.03% of all the verses in the Bible. Uh, I didn't do the math, I just looked it up. But see, Matthew's gospel... He doesn't describe this event. In the original ending to Mark's gospel, we know there's an addendum they added on, but the original ending of Mark's gospel does not describe this event. John's gospel has Jesus still on earth when he ends the writing of his gospel. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, when he talks about, he gives a list of the things that are of most importance. He doesn't list the ascent of Christ. And so this is a key part of the story. Why do the other gospel writers not include it? Why so little space given to it? Why does Paul not even talk about it in the list of things that are of most importance? So number one, the Bible speaks little of it. Number two, the ascension seems like a bad plan. In our minds, it doesn't seem like a very good plan. So let me ask you a question. What seems better to you? Jesus staying on earth with us or leaving us? Him staying here or leaving? Well, if you were to ask the disciples that question, it's a no-brainer. Their answer would be Jesus staying here. Jesus staying here. That was in their mind, that's what they thought would be the best. Jesus staying on earth seems like an intuitively better idea. And this can be seen with just the following premises and conclusion. Premise number one, think of it this way. Being with Jesus bodily in the new heavens and the new earth is the best end state. Premise two, Jesus is no longer with us in body. Conclusion, it would have been better if he had not 
left. If it's best to be with Jesus in the new heavens, new earth, this, this physically, being physically with Jesus, but Jesus is no longer with us, then it would have been better of Jesus just to stay. And you think about this just practically for a moment. Practically speaking, think about evangelism. You know, think about how difficult it is to sell something to somebody that they can't actually see. Like you try to sell this product to somebody, but you can't show them the product. And with Jesus, it can feel that way sometimes when you're sharing the gospel. You're, like, you're telling people about this Jesus, but Jesus isn't here. But if Jesus were here on earth, how much easier, at least in our minds, it would be to convince people of the importance of following Christ, especially in a world that prizes, that values physical proof. You just point to Jesus is going to be here. Go see Jesus. Go hear Jesus. That would seem much better Make evangelism seemingly much easier, and in our minds, more people coming to faith in Christ. Or think about just being comforted. If Jesus were here with us physically, wouldn't we feel more comforted by him? You know, it's one thing to know that someone sympathizes with you. You talk with them on the phone, but they're away from you. They sympathize with you. You feel some sense of comfort. But it's another thing when someone is sitting next to you, arm around you. That's a different level of comfort. And Jesus isn't here physically, and so there's a sense of like, we don't always feel comforted by Christ when we're going through difficulty, but if Christ was right there next to me, arm around me, there's a sense of I would be more comforted, feel more loved, more valued as I'm going through difficulty. And so in our minds, we can kind of think the ascension just seems like a bad plan for all kinds of reasons. Number three, the implications are a bit unclear. It's like, if you were asked the question, what is the significance of the ascension, which we're going to ask here in a moment, my guess is that many of you would have a hard time succinctly answering that question. Why is, this, why is the ascension of Christ significant? Many would be like, I, I don't know. And we just think mostly about the resurrection. We don't know because it's, it's a bit blurry. It's a bit unclear. In fact, the disciples in Acts chapter 1 verse 6 said, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel or the kingdom of Israel at this time. See, even the disciples, they were not expecting the ascension. They're thinking, Jesus, is this a time now you're going to set up your kingdom? You know, you died, but you're back to life. And so are you going to come and you're going to set up your kingdom conquering the world? No, and they're standing there just kind of left staring into the sky. I wonder if that's partly why, you know, the, they're standing there. And what they had hoped for, what they thought was going to happen was now not going to happen. You know, their plan, their idea of Jesus was that he was going to conquer the Romans, set up his kingdom, and they would rule and reign with Jesus in that kingdom. Jesus was not supposed to leave according to their plan. Complicating it even more, at least on our end, there's only two passages again that actually recount the ascension of Christ, and these passages contain very little theological explanation for the purpose of Jesus' ascent. And so we wonder, it's a bit unclear what significance does the ascension of Christ have in my life. Fourth is this, the event is a bit abnormal, especially from a modern perspective. It seems just strange and to some maybe ridiculous. You think about it for a moment, there's this middle-aged man standing there talking to people and all of a sudden he takes off, goes up into the air, maybe fast, maybe slow, maybe a medium speed, I don't know, but he's disappearing into the clouds and where does he go? He must have traveled through the atmosphere, but then what? Where did he go? We look out into space. Where did he go? How did he just survive without a spacesuit? 
You know, nobody can go into space without a spacesuit. It's a bit weird. Even if you accept supernatural healings, the resurrection, those miracles make more sense because people can live their lives, their restored lives. And so the disciples are standing there just kind of staring, gaping into the heavens, not knowing what to do. He's gone again, but this time he didn't die. He just took off into the sky. And for us, it seems like such an abnormal event even in the Bible. Fifth and last one is this. The resurrection absorbs the ascension. The resurrection gets all the attention. And the ascension, again, is just kind of like this exclamation point on the resurrection. In fact, Scripture conceptually combines these two events into one. The ascension oftentimes just gets kind of subsumed with the resurrection. In fact, when we read about the exaltation or the glorification of Christ, we tend to think about our minds go to the resurrection and skip the ascension. And I understand that because of how the New Testament writers tend to write. They tend to slide seamlessly from Jesus' death into his glory. And when they slide from his death into his glory, the resurrection and ascension are just kind of included in that category of glory, but our minds don't typically go to the ascension. In fact, a couple examples here, Luke 24, verse 26, wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Luke is telling us how Jesus said the Messiah would have to come, he would suffer, and then he would enter into glory. He moves quickly from Jesus' death to this glorious state, and in this glory, he's referring to the resurrected, ascended state but we often don't process it that way. Or Philippians 2, Paul writes, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and for this reason God highly exalted him, that Paul pivots from the cross straight to the exaltation of Christ. And when we think of exaltation, we just think of the resurrected Christ, but when Paul says exaltation, he's talking about the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. That in the apostles' minds, this upward movement of Jesus, rising from the dead, continued in the ascension. It continued in the ascension. But for many of us, when we read these texts, we just think of the resurrection. And that's not wrong, it's just incomplete. The New Testament writers didn't think just of the resurrection when they're talking about the exalted, glorious state of Jesus, but also the ascension of Christ. In other words, we should not just equate the glorification or the exaltation of Jesus with the resurrection but we should see it as the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. And so the biblical authors, they viewed Christ's act of rising as incomplete until Christ ascended and sat on his glorious throne. But why? Why was the resurrection, or rather the ascension, why does it matter? Why is it significant? How does it affect your life and my life practically? Well, there's six reasons the ascension matters. I think six reasons that actually impact our life. The first one is this, is Jesus returns to his Father. Before his death and after his resurrection, Jesus, he makes it clear that he was sent by his Father and he will return to his Father. John 13, 1, before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. John 13, 3, Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God. John 16, 28, I came from the Father and have come into the world. 
Again, I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Or John 20, when Jesus says to Mary, don't cling to me since I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father in your Father, to my God and to your God. That Jesus, Jesus was sent to earth by his Father. And he was sent to earth by his Father in part to die a horrific death for the very people who rebelled against him. That he was abandoned by his father so that we ultimately would not have to be. But Jesus came to earth, and as he was on earth, he told his disciples again and again, I am going back. There's a day coming when I will be reunited with my father as I once was. And the image that kind of comes to my mind is that of a soldier, soldier who is courageous, who has returned from war, from a hard-fought victory to the ones he or she loves. You know, we've seen all of those moments when a loved one returns from war, a father, a mother, a sibling, a son, a daughter. They appear in a classroom of their child or at the home of their family or at some event surprising those that they love. And you can't help be moved when you see it because this person who was gone whose life was maybe on the line, is now back in the arms of the ones who love him and her most. And this is the case with Jesus. In one sense, he's back in the arms of his Father, who loves him. As one writer put it, there's no sweeter reunion in the history of the world than Jesus' return to his Father. It demonstrates the love that the Godhead has for one another and the loving relationship that we enter into through the blood of Christ. And Jesus makes good on his promises. Jesus again and again states that he is returning to the Father. To not return to the Father would make Jesus out to be a liar and someone whom we could not trust. And so Jesus, first and foremost, returns to his Father whom He deeply loves and is deeply loved by. Second, Jesus is installed as king. What happens when Jesus ascends to heaven? Well, he is installed or takes his rightful place as king of the world. Think about Acts, Acts chapter 7. Stephen, he's preaching the gospel before Stephen is stoned to death. He's preaching the gospel to the Sanhedrin, who are the, the religious elite, the kind of the ruling class of Israel. And he says, when they heard these things, or when the the Sanhedrin heard these things, they were enraged and gnashed their teeth at Stephen. Stephen, Luke says, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And when you combine This event in Acts 7 with Acts chapter 1, where Luke writes about the ascension, verses 9 through 11, which tells us that Jesus is taken up into heaven in a cloud. These two texts together suggest that Jesus' ascension fulfilled an important prophecy in Daniel chapter 7. What's being prophesied in Daniel chapter 7? Well, Daniel the prophet writes, I continue watching in the night visions, and suddenly... One, like a son of man, was coming with the clouds of heaven. How did Jesus ascend? With the clouds, in a cloud. And he approached the ancient of days, God, and was escorted before him. 
And he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. And his dominion was an everlasting dominion that will not pass away in his kingdom, one that will never, that will not be destroyed. This one, like the Son of Man, approaching the Ancient of Days, God in his cloud of glory. And how did Jesus ascend into heaven? In a cloud. Where is Jesus currently? Where is he at? When we think about Jesus, where is he? He is on the throne in heaven. And he is ruling and reigning over the entire universe in a kingdom that will never end. In a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Colossians 3.1 says, so if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is. Where is he? Seated at the right hand of God. Revelation 3.21, to the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. Jesus conquered, and Jesus sat down with his Father on his throne, and he will receive unending praise, Revelation 5. That Jesus will reign at God's right hand until all of his enemies are subdued or put under his feet, Psalm 110. God's kingdom has been inaugurated through the enthronement of Jesus, a kingdom that Daniel says will never be shaken, a kingdom that has no end, and a kingdom in which we are promised to rule with Christ. Revelation 3.21, to the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne that we will be with him, ruling and reigning, that Christ in some way will delegate some of his ruling authority to his people. But when we think about Jesus right now, where should we think about Jesus? How should we think about Jesus? Well, one way we should think about Jesus is that he sits on heaven's throne, above all. Over all kings, over all presidents, over all governments, over all things. He is installed as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Number three, Jesus is our mediator and high priest. How should we think about Jesus or what happened when Jesus ascended? Well, he is our mediator and high priest. Paul tells us that Jesus is the unique mediator between God and man. That there's only one who can reconcile this divorce between God and man. The holiness of God, the sinfulness of man. And that one mediator, Paul tells us, is Jesus Christ. There's one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. That by his death, by his resurrection, Jesus has secured our forgiveness. We've been declared righteous, not guilty before God. That we've been reconciled, brought into a relationship with God that starts now and will continue forever into eternity. And he is not only the one who has mediated this relationship, but Jesus is our high priest. And Hebrews 8 says, now the main point of what is being said is this. We have this kind of high priest. He's making an argument that the high priest is no longer needed because Jesus is our high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And what is Jesus doing as our high priest? What is he doing? Romans 8, 34. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more, has been raised. He is also sat, or is also at the right hand of God. Ascended. And what is he doing? 
intercedes for us. Who can condemn you? Paul says. No one. Why can you not be condemned? Because you have one who is always interceding for you in defending your case before God, Jesus, our high priest. Always, Hebrews 7, 25 says, therefore he is able to completely save those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus is taking up the case of the believer in the presence of God the Father. If he did not, our sin would bring judgment upon us and we would be separated from God for all of eternity. But we have Jesus who is our defender, our great defender, sitting in this intercessory role, currently, now, defending you and I, that when you sin, you don't have to worry because Jesus is there defending you, pleading your case before the Father like a defense lawyer on our behalf. As John puts it, 1 John 2, we have an advocate with the Father. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, that Jesus is sitting on the throne, but he's our high priest interceding for us. He is active on our behalf in heaven. He's not only seated on the throne, ruling and reigning, but he is mediating for those who have put their faith and trust in him. Number four, Jesus is preparing a place for us. Jesus' homecoming to his father prepares the way for our homecoming to be with Jesus forever. John 14, the disciples are troubled. And Jesus says to them in verse 1, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I, what I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am you may also be. You know, Jesus didn't leave earth for no purpose. There are multiple purposes he left, and one of them is to go and prepare a place for us in heaven, this new city that we will be a part of. And though Jesus is not more specific in this context about what that exactly means, he helps us understand that he's working on our behalf by making or preparing a place for us in his Father's house. The disciples are here. They're disturbed. They're worried. They're troubled. They're troubled that they wouldn't be with Jesus, that Jesus was going to leave them. And so Jesus is comforting them, and he comforts them by reassuring, you will be with me. See, I'm leaving for good reason. I'm going to go prepare something great for you. And because I'm going to go prepare something great for you, don't worry, I'm coming back for you to bring you to this home, this heavenly home. And so the ascension, let the ascension be an encouragement to us that Christ is going to bring us home to be with him. That the ascension is confirmation that Jesus will bring us back, will bring us back to himself, to this heavenly home. So Jesus ascended into heaven in order to prepare a place for us. Number five, the Holy Spirit is sent to us. One of the greatest promises in the Bible is that we will receive the Holy Spirit, John 14. And I'll ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. Who is this counselor? Verse 17. He is the spirit of truth. 
He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him, but you do know him, and because he remains with you and will be in you. He remains with you and will be in you. In fact, Luke records Jesus saying just before the ascension, this same conversation, the mountain, and look, I am sending you what my Father promised. As for you, stay in a city until you are empowered on high. And we know from Acts 1, 4 through 5, that promise is the promise of the Holy Spirit, being baptized in the Holy Spirit. But when, when would the Holy Spirit come? When would this happen? Well, Jesus says in John 16, nevertheless, I am telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away, because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. When will the Spirit of God come? Well, after Jesus leaves. After he leaves. And we see this actually taking place in Acts chapter 2. Acts 1, Acts 2, that the Spirit of God descends upon the disciples. And Peter is out preaching the gospel. They're speaking in tongues, and he's preaching the gospel in Jerusalem. And this is what Peter says about this event in Acts 2.33. Therefore, since he, Jesus, has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. The coming of the Holy Spirit is directly attached to the ascension of Christ. That if Jesus had not ascended into heaven, then we would not receive the Holy Spirit. We would not be indwelled with the Holy Spirit. This deposit guaranteeing our inheritance to be with God for all of eternity. But Jesus, he ascended into heaven. And the Spirit of God has come onto all believers, all, onto all who believe in the name of of Christ. And why? Why did Jesus send us his spirit? Well, there's three quick reasons. One is just to be present with his people. John 14, 16. He's going to be with us forever. That he lives inside of us. It's the, the mystery of the gospel that Christ is in you, Paul says. Two, to empower them for the mission. Acts 1, you receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you to be my witnesses. We'll see more of this here in a moment. But three, to transform believers to live new lives reflecting their king. Romans 8, 9 through 11, that we are going to be conformed in the image of Christ, the Spirit of God. If you have the Holy Spirit, he is going to move you towards Christ, conforming your motives, attitudes, behaviors, desires to that of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we might reflect who Christ is, image him appropriately in a world that doesn't know Christ. So the Holy Spirit is given to us. Sixth and lastly, Jesus' ascension sets the pattern for his return. Back to Acts 1, 9 through 11. Disciples are standing there and they're watching and Jesus is taken up out of their sight. Suddenly we're told two men in white clothes appear. In verse 11, they said, men of Galilee... Why do you stand looking up into heaven? I love this question. It's like, I, I don't know. We just saw Jesus take off into the sky. Why do you think we're standing here looking up into the heavens, you know? But they use this as a moment to explain something. This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. This Jesus 
The way you saw him leave is the way he's going to return. Jesus is going to return in the same way that he left. And Jesus tells us this, Mark 13, verse 24, but in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not shed its light, and the stars will be falling from the sky, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then, then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. How will Jesus return? The Son of Man who ascended into the heavens in a cloud and approached the Ancient of Days and is given this kingdom, this everlasting kingdom. This Son of Man, he's going to return in the clouds with great power and glory. And what will happen upon the return of Christ? Two big ideas will happen. Those who know Christ will be gathered to, become, to be with Christ. In fact, the end of this passage, Mark 13, verse 27, he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. That if you are in Christ, he is going to bring you to himself. To where? To the new heaven, on the new earth, in the new city, Jerusalem. And we will stand and be in the presence of Christ for all of eternity in this home that Christ has prepared for us. But there's another reality, and to those who have rejected Christ, who have despised Christ, who refuse to bow their knee to Christ on this side of heaven, to those he will punish. To those he will judge fairly. And the fair judgment for your rebellion toward God your sinning against God, your sexual morality, idolatry, lying, envying, cheating, stealing. That just punishment is eternal separation from God in hell. And the only thing that can solve that problem is Jesus. The only one, as Paul said, who can mediate between you and God is Jesus. But when Jesus returns, for those who know him, it is going to be a glorious day. For his kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. See, the ascension of Christ is the promise that one day the kingdom of God will come. And that we, who are part of Christ, will be in that kingdom forever. His kingdom exists, but it's not fully established on this earth as he is going to eventually do. But let the ascension be a reminder of what is to come, that Christ will return to judge the living and the dead, to gather those who are his, to be in his kingdom for all of eternity. And so the disciples, they're standing here, and they see Jesus take off into the sky. And this brings us to the last question, how? How do the disciples respond to the ascension of Christ? Well, there are two responses that should also be our responses. The first is worship. Verse 52, after worshiping him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and they were continually in the temple praising God. How did the disciples respond? After they saw Jesus ascend into heaven, what did they do? They worshiped Christ. And worship isn't 
only singing praises to God. It's certainly not less than that, but it's ultimately a life lived in surrender to God, Romans 12.1. The Paul says, in view of God's mercy, in view of everything that God has done for you, that he has given to you, that you do not deserve, namely reconciliation to God, eternity in heaven with God, you should live your life now in worship or surrender to God. You should worship him. That the ascension of Christ should cause us to worship Christ, to bow to Christ, not just in a physical sense, but in our hearts, that we would live our lives surrendered and centered on, conformed to Jesus Christ. So there's worship, second, witness. We're to witness. See, we, we gather together in part to worship, to sing praises to God, to be reminded of who God is, but then we are sent out to do something. And what are we sent out to do? We are sent out to witness. What are we to do when we leave here? Just go on about our lives, just do our own thing, do what we want to do? No, ultimately, you have been given a purpose and a mission in this world, and it is to witness, and that weaves into our life, and there's lots of ways to practically apply that but in the broad category we are to witness acts one but you will receive power when the holy spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in jerusalem judea samaria to the ends of the earth acts 4 31 when they had prayed they played the place where they had assembled was shaken and they were all filled with the holy spirit and began to speak the word of god boldly what did these men and women do they didn't cower in a room like they did before Christ resurrected. But they boldly went into the city of Jerusalem and they preached the message of the gospel. They witnessed, they testified to the death, resurrection, ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus is sitting on the throne in heaven, the one whom you've waited for, the Messiah, has come. You should bow to him. You should surrender your life to him, that they boldly proclaimed the excellencies of Christ, the good news of the gospel, and so should we. We should come, and we should gather, and we should worship together, and we should go out into the world and witness to, testify to, the mercies of Christ. Let's pray. Father, God, we do ask for your grace to